And now, dear friends, our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews 11, verses 17 to 19. And alongside it, as we consider the narrative in view in those verses, we'll be looking some at Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 19. We'll spend some time in earlier parts of Genesis as well. So I'd invite you to have your Bibles available and uh, ready marked at the Hebrews and Genesis points so you can follow along and move with us as we go. We come this morning to the final verses in Hebrews 11 that focus explicitly on the faith of Abraham. As you know, if you've been with us in recent weeks, the pastor writing Hebrews has selected four episodes from Abraham's life to highlight in this chapter. Three of them we looked at back in December. The first two were in verses 8 to 10, where we considered the call and then the cost of faith. The call was in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. The cost was in verses 9 and 10. By faith, he went to live, or better, to sojourn in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why would he do that? Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The third episode was then in verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews 11, where both Abraham and Sarah, by God's grace, met the challenge of faith learning and believing that nothing is too hard for the Lord. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Last week, between that third and the fourth example of Abraham's faith, we considered verses 13 to 16. Abraham and Sarah, along with Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs, these all died in faith, the pastor said in verse 13. They lived by faith such that when they came to die, they died in faith. They were seeking a homeland, desiring a better country that is, a heavenly one. Death itself wasn't enough to shake their faith because the focus of their faith was on God's promises for the future, a future beyond death. Which is why I think the pastor saves this fourth episode from Abraham's life for after verses 13 to 16. Because what else from Father Abraham's life of faith could make the point any clearer than the events we read about in verses 17 to 19? By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, 
offered up Isaac. In view this morning is one of the most significant events in the Old Testament, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. It is the pinnacle example of Abraham's faith. And as the pastor says in Hebrews 11 verse 17, it was his great test. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. This morning, as we consider this climactic moment in Abraham's life of faith, we'll do so in two parts. First, in verses 17 and 18, we'll consider faith's test. And then secondly, in verse 19, we'll consider faith's triumph. First, and for a while, we'll look at faith's test, and then secondly, though more briefly, faith's triumph. We begin then with the test of faith that came to Abraham. The pastor, of course, refers to it as a test because that's how Genesis itself characterizes the episode in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. There we read, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. We'll discuss the nature of this test in a few minutes. But the first thing I want to emphasize under this heading of Abraham's test is a point that we've already alluded to, but which I think is crucial for everything else we'll say. So I want to make it explicit. The test that comes to Abraham in Genesis 22 and the triumph of his faith that we read about there, all of it comes at the end or near the end of Abraham's life of faith. It's crucial to realize that this test came after substantial spiritual growth in Abraham's life. The contours of the test that the Lord gives Abraham here are so severe that I think we're to understand that it was only now that Abraham was ready for it. The faith on display here in Abraham's life didn't just happen. We cannot read what transpires in Genesis chapter 22 apart from everything that's happened since Genesis chapter 12. And for some weeks now, we've been considering parts of that over the last few sermons in Hebrews. But at the same time, we haven't looked at the whole picture, have we? While the pastor rightly highlights in Hebrews 11 four key episodes of faith in Abraham's life, he knows as well as anyone who's ever read Genesis that Abraham's faith wasn't always exemplary. At times, it seemed as though Abraham had no faith at all. And the point is that Abraham had to learn to trust God more and more in more and more difficult circumstances. Here's how one author puts it. 
in his wisdom, God taught Abraham to keep the covenant. By placing his promises in constant jeopardy on the one hand, only to rescue them repeatedly on the other. Initially, between the jeopardy and the rescue, there was panic and disobedience as Abraham sought to secure God's promises through his own strength and ingenuity. But eventually, Abraham learned from God's track record of faithfulness to resist distrusting God when his word was called into question. That's the big picture thing that we learn about faith from the entire Abrahamic narrative. And you can just see the cycles play out in Abraham's life over and over again in Genesis chapters 12 to 21, including between the episodes of faith that the pastor mentions in Hebrews chapter 11. And so we're going to take a little time to see this pattern within the life of Abraham before we come to Genesis 22. For example, you can go right back to the start and the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And if you have your Bible there and want to turn there, you can. We won't take a very long time on this, but I want you to see how this works. In Genesis chapter 12, we considered Abraham's faith as he responded obediently to the call of God. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We saw how he went from Ur into Canaan, and though it was occupied by the Canaanites, Abraham believed the Lord's promise, and he builds an altar to the Lord, and he begins his tent-dwelling, sojourning existence. All of that was in verses 1 to 9 of Genesis chapter 12 which is where we stopped. But then what's the first thing that hits right away in verse 10? Do you see it there? Now there was a famine in the land. And so right away in Abraham's life of faith, what's the test? Well, can the God who led Abram to Canaan now preserve Abram in Canaan? even in the midst of such adversity? Abraham is immediately faced with a situation in which God's promise has been called into question. And so what does Abram do, not having learned yet to take God at his word? He goes to Egypt. Abram went to Egypt, the land of unbelief, because he doubted that God could meet his needs in the midst of a famine. This is chapter 12, verse 10b. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Except he wasn't supposed to sojourn there. That's the whole point. Going into the promised land is what faith looks like. Leaving the promised land is what unbelief looks like. So once he's there, to meet his needs in Egypt, what does Abraham do? Sin just begets more sin, right? He gives up both his integrity and his wife in return for material security. He becomes a coward who pawns off Sarah to save his skin because he's afraid that when Pharaoh sees how beautiful he is, he'll kill him to secure her. 
So he tells Sarai to lie and say she's his sister so that instead Pharaoh would take her in and Abram would get what he needed. And it worked, right? Chapter 12, verse 16. And for her sake, he, that is Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. I mean, Abraham had health and wealth. But Abraham no longer had his integrity, his wife, the promised land, and the promises of God for his future. And there he sits in Egypt alone with what this world has to offer. At which point then you're reading Genesis and you say, what kind of faith is this? The covenant's broken. And remember, this is all after Abram had responded faithfully when God showed up in his life and called him to leave Ur, and he did. And then furthermore, Abram was willing then to be a sojourner in the land once he finds out that there's Canaanites already there, and he won't inherit this land himself. And the pastor celebrates those moments of faith in verses 9 and 10 in Hebrews 11, and we talked all about that. And then this is where you get to by the end of just Genesis chapter 12. I mean, what's going on? And you see what's going on and what keeps going on is that Abram hasn't yet learned to take the Lord at his word, not in every circumstance. One wonders where Abram's unbelief would have led at this point had God not intervened. But God does intervene. God rescues Abram. From his own unbelief, chapter 12, verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. The Lord acts to get Abram out of there. Miraculously, instead of punishing him for his deception, Pharaoh sends Abram back to the promised land. In the face of Abram's sin, God rescued him. Why? Well, so that Abram could go on to keep the covenant. So that God could fulfill his covenant promises that he'd already made to Abram. I mean, does that make sense? God's committed to Abram. God's committed to his people, brothers and sisters. And so having already placed his very presence in Abram's life, God will do whatever it takes to teach Abram to trust him. The Lord is patient with us during our school of faith, dear friends. He even uses our failures to show us that he can be trusted no matter what. And so God delivers Abram from Egypt, bringing him back into the Negev. And as a result of his being rescued, Abram's dependence on God is strengthened. And we know that because then straight away in Genesis 13, Abram does something completely unexpected in the ancient world. He gives Lot the first choice of land for grazing his flocks. Normally, the patriarch of the family would take the first choice and then his children would be given what was left over. Instead, Abram considers Lot's need to be more important than his own. Why? He's living by faith again. 
Not surprisingly then, Lot picks the Jordan Valley because it's well watered. The text is very clear about that. And Abram goes back into Canaan, which is the whole point. Abram knows now again that that's where he belongs. And so in verses 14 to 18 of Genesis 13, you have God restating the covenant promises again, to which Abram in turn responds by building another altar to the Lord, this time in Hebron. And I know we've looked at some of this in the past when we've talked about Abraham and the, the Genesis narrative. But the point I'm making, dear friends, and reminding you of is that this is the pattern we see in Abraham's life. There's obedient faith in God's promise. Then those promises are put in jeopardy by circumstances in Abraham's life. And then in response to those circumstances, Abraham distrusts the Lord and does something to try to secure whatever he can on his own in disobedience. And then the Lord rescues him, leading Abram, Abraham to a greater dependence on God's promise and Abraham begins acting again in obedient faith. It's the roller coaster of faith, dear friends, and it repeats again and again throughout Abraham's life. Abraham would be rescued again and again from his unbelief, learning through the roller coaster of faith that he can trust God no matter what. And what I want us to realize is that the lesson of faith takes a lifetime to learn, brothers and sisters. Keeping covenant with the Lord doesn't mean becoming perfect overnight. It means progressing over a lifetime. And so you fast forward then to the third episode that the pastor mentions in Hebrews chapter 11 regarding Abraham and Sarah as they come to consider him faithful who had promised and a few weeks ago, right before Christmas, we looked at Genesis chapter 17 and 18, and it's all, it's wonderful. And it was another level of faith because how does the pastor put it? Abraham was as good as dead. Sarah was barren, but they did in fact trust the Lord for Isaac. We talked about that. We looked at those narratives in chapter 17 and 18. But then we didn't talk about Genesis chapter 20, right? Isaac doesn't come until Genesis chapter 21. Because what happens in Genesis chapter 20 as we work our way towards our text this morning? Well, Abraham's faith faltered again. And this, remember, is post the Lord himself literally visiting Abraham and Sarah, as we talked about. I mean, Dear friends, it's hard to believe in God's promises. It's hard. Can you relate to that? I mean, sometimes I think we act like, well, if we're real Christians, then we won't. We won't struggle like this. And we become so convinced of that that even when we are struggling like this with faith, as Abraham did, well, we don't dare say anything about it, and especially not in the church, for goodness sake, because everyone knows people who have real faith, well, they don't fail like this. It's all nonsense. 
Because there you are in Genesis chapter 20. And what does Abraham do? He pawns off Sarah again to save his life with Abimelech. He has Sarah lie again, and the motivation is explicit. Genesis 20, verse 11, Abraham says, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. He wasn't trusting the Lord. And so, again, you can anticipate what happens. Once more, the Lord rescues Abraham. It's the only way. It happens again and again. Verse 3 God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because the woman you have taken, she is a man's wife. I mean, God saves Abraham once more from his own sin. And there we are in the end of chapter 20 now. And Abraham and Sarah are released. And that then is when you read in Genesis chapter 21, verse 1, that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Why? Because they had been so marvelously faithful? No. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And it's Isaac. And it's the miracle child. And the Lord again rescues Abraham and now we're coming up to our text. Some time has passed. Chapter 21 of Genesis, verse 8 says, The child grew and was weaned. And you can read in chapter 21 about what happens with Hagar and Ishmael as they're sent off and how Abraham's not happy about that. But God will attend to them. And God reminds Abraham of his promise in verse 12. And then finally, in the end of Genesis chapter 21, Abraham and Abimelech, remember the guy that he just lied to about Sarah, his wife, and they make a treaty. And so in the course of chapter 21 of Genesis, we get the renewed promise now of a people who will be descendants of Isaac. Isaac is here. And then by the end of the chapter, we have a sense of peace in the land at least regarding, with, regarding Abimelech. And so verse 33 of Genesis chapter 21 says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. El Olam. Which is supposed to say it all because... In designating the Lord the everlasting God, Abraham is declaring in that the stability and the security and the permanence that he now feels in the covenant and his relationship with the Lord. I mean, in other words, by God's grace, in the roller coaster of faith, Abraham's back on top, right? And then comes the test. How does verse 1 of Genesis chapter 22 put it? After these things. Well, of course it's after these things that the test comes. And I just spent all that time going back through something of the shape of the Abrahamic narrative because what I want us to understand is that when the pastor writing Hebrews 
says in chapter 11, verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. It's coming after all of that. It's coming after all the times God showed up in Abraham's life and spoke the promises. After all the times that those promises had been put in jeopardy. After all the times Abraham had failed to trust the Lord. And after all the times that God marvelously rescued him and brought him back and Abraham returned to trust the Lord in obedient faith once again. It was through all those ups and downs that Abraham grew in faith until he became capable of the ultimate display. That's when this great test comes. Because that's what the life of faith is all about, dear friends. It's about learning, learning from God's track record of faithfulness in our lives and in history, learning to resist distrusting him when his word is called into question in our lives. And in the end, it's about expecting God to keep his commitment even in the face of death. Was Abraham ready? Well, by God's grace, he was. There's not a lot of suspense in the Hebrews passage about this. The passage just right away says, By faith, when he was tested, Abraham offered Isaac. Well, there's plenty of suspense in the Genesis text that you heard Charmaine read. Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I mean, what runs through Abraham's mind then, do you imagine? We're never told. We never really get a clue as to how Abraham feels. The narrator of Genesis is very sparse in such detail, but I think you can imagine it. Still, remarkably, Abraham's response is one of obedience. The Genesis chapter is full of details that talk about this. He rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He cut the wood. He went. Three days they journeyed. Then there's the ascent up the mountain, the question of young Isaac as the boy walks along with his father, carrying the wood for his own sacrifice. Where is the lamb for a burnt offering, Dad? You feel the, the dreaded moment coming as Abraham builds the altar, lays the wood, binds his son, takes the knife. This is all what the pastor depicts in verses 17 and 18 of Hebrews chapter 11. He who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, the pastor writes. He was in the act of, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And the point, of course, is that God himself had said that. 
Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It's from Genesis chapter 21, verse 12. It's an explicit quote from the Septuagint version of that text. The love of a father for his son isn't even the full extent of the challenge that we feel here, right? As one commentator puts it, it was not merely that God asked Abraham to sacrifice one who had been so long awaited and so dearly loved. God asked him to sacrifice the very one through whom God himself had promised to multiply his descendants and make him a great nation. To require that Isaac should be the victim seemed to overthrow the very heart of the promise and the covenant. As Hebrews puts it, Abraham was he who had received the promises. I don't think that means that Abraham had just heard them. He certainly had heard them over and over and over again. I think it means that Abraham had come finally to fully embrace them, to receive them with confidence. The quote in verse 18, as I mentioned in Hebrews 11, the quote there is taken directly from the Greek version of Genesis 21, verse 12. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This was what Abraham was believing when he allowed Ishmael to be sent off in chapter 21 knowing that God would care for him. When the treaty was made with Abimelech at Beersheba, it was enacted and Abraham calls the Lord El Olam, the everlasting God. Isaac wasn't Abraham's only son in the biological sense, but he sure was his only son in the sense of the covenantal promises. And as I read Genesis, the point in chapter 21 is that Abraham had finally come to receive it all with confidence. Which is why now we see how profound this text in Genesis 22 really is, right? Because what's different now? Abraham's faith had been tested before. We saw that from the beginning lots of times. What's different is that now it wasn't the circumstances of Abraham's life that called God's promises into question. It wasn't famine. It wasn't Sarah's barrenness. It wasn't the threat of Abimelech or whatever. Now it was God himself, you see. The question Abraham faced hasn't changed. It's the question we all face any time we're tested. The question is, will God keep his word? It's just that in this case, it's not the stuff around him making Abraham wonder if God's really trustworthy. It's God himself. The same God who had visited Sarah as he had said, who had done to Sarah what he had promised. It's God himself calling his own promises into question. I cannot think of a more difficult test than this in all the scriptures save the one faced by our Lord Jesus himself. And so it is that we come, amazingly, to faith's triumph. 
And the key is found in verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 11. Because how is it that Abraham was able to pass this most profound test? The pastor tells us. It was because, verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He considered. Some of you may know that the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard famously takes this test of Abraham in Genesis 22 as, as a demonstration of the fact that faith is a leap into the dark. That faith is best understood as an act of absurdity, of believing the unbelievable, of doing the irrational thing. That's not what the scriptures say about it. In fact, at least as I understand Kierkegaard, it's precisely the opposite. The verb at the beginning of verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 11 is the Greek word logizomai. It's the word from which we get logarithm. It's used in the sense of to calculate, to reckon up on the basis of firm evidence. The idea is that Abraham used his logic and his life experience with the Lord to reason this out. He was almost mathematical in his reasoning, in other words. To translate it here as the ESV does to say he considered. Maybe that gives the wrong impression. Because rather than it being a matter of mere opinion, Abraham had come to a conclusion. That's the point. And we see it in the Genesis narrative, don't we? In Genesis chapter 22, verse 8. Abraham's answer to Isaac's question about the missing lamb showed that he was passing this test. Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. How could he say such a thing when he knew that his own son was to be killed? Did Abraham expect a miraculous substitution? How could he resolve the conflict between God's promise and God's command? And the answer is that having embraced God's promise that God would make Abraham's descendants great through Isaac, through Isaac shall your seed be named, yet confronted with God's command to offer up that same Isaac as a sacrifice, Abraham draws the only conclusion possible in view of the trustworthiness of God's word. That if God called him to kill his son, God would also raise him from the dead. that against all natural probability, Abraham reckoned that God would be able to accomplish his promise of descendants through Isaac despite the seemingly contradictory command to sacrifice his life as a burnt offering. That's why in Genesis chapter 22, verse 5, Abraham tells his servants that he and his son will go up the mountain to make the sacrifice and then they'll both come back again. 
Stay here with the donkey, Abraham said. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. Through the roller coaster of his life, Abraham had come to trust God no matter what. His willingness to offer up his son was not an irrational leap into the dark. It was the only sensible response to the God Abraham had come to know in his life. Faith isn't believing the unbelievable. It's trusting in God's word because of what you've come to know of God's character. It only makes sense that the God who created the world could raise the dead. It's only logical that the one who brought Isaac into being from a man as good as dead could raise the dead. And as we've already seen, Abraham, as looking forward to the city that has foundations, he was, so that it only stands to reason that God's promise of a heavenly city and of a people who would inherit it necessarily included their resurrection. Yes, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. It is, in fact, the only reasonable conclusion Abraham could have drawn. And so the knife is in the air. Isaac is about to be slain by his own father, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Brothers and sisters, the story of Abraham's walk with God began with his call in Ur, but it reaches its climax in the sacrifice or binding of Isaac. The same man who would pawn off his wife twice to save his own skin is now willing to offer up his most precious possession because he fears, above all things, losing God. By God's grace, Abraham's idolatry has given way to the worship of God alone. You and I, may never, I think, will never be tested to the same degree that Abraham was. He is unique in the role he plays in history here. But the goal of our lives 
the goal of our lives of faith is no different. That we too must come to trust and obey God's word, no matter what. Knowing that the God who tests is the God who provides and has provided most gloriously of all what we all, including Abraham himself, ultimately needed. If we had time, we could explore this aspect of Genesis 22. He has provided his own son to die for our own sins. Growth in faith involves testing. Surely it's true that the way to increase faith is to exercise faith. And yet, as we've seen, the road to such strong faith is never smooth, brothers and sisters. There will be times of uncertainty, and times of doubt, and times even of despair in our lives. And in such times, we may fail at points. But the story of Abraham teaches us that by God's grace, even our failures and sins can be redeemed. And we too can grow in faith through all of our life and the tests and the trials that are yet to come. In fact, that is our great hope. For as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, Verse 6, and with these words we'll close. 1 Peter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.